please be advised. We will be discussing subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences, and will include subjects that some will find challenging, traumatic, or triggering. Welcome to You Don't Fight Alone, a podcast sharing the stories of those of us successfully living with mental illness and how we got here. So right around uh, my 16th and a half birthday, I had um, the final falling out with my exceptionally abusive mother. And I, at the time, was uh, working two different jobs for myself. Um, I was a paper boy and I was a dishwasher and that was because my mom took all my money. And I had made an agreement with her that she would relinquish the vehicle for the weekend so I could go to a school dance. And, or just the evening, not even the weekend, because I paid for the insurance and I put the gas in it, and then she could have my entire paycheck from that week. And normally I was able to spirit a little bit of money away, but this time I was willing to hand it over carte blanche. And everything was fine leading up to the night of the dance. And I got ready for the dance, um, shower had changed, Headed downstairs to grab the car keys. I uh, was expected to pick up my date for uh, fall formal, something similar to that. And the keys weren't where they were supposed to be. And I hollered up to my mom, and she had gotten belligerently drunk and decided I couldn't go. And I got um, pretty upset and packed up my stuff, and I walked out of the house. And I slept um, in a car for a couple of days. And then I ended up staying with um, some friends of mine for a while. And it was a really long, drawn-out process for me in terms of life and emotions. Um, My mom is... uh, insane. That's not the clinical term, but anybody that smacks their child with a wine bottle because they refuse to say the rosary is uh, probably not the best parent. So I had to undergo a lot of testimony in the court and psychological testing because my mom lied out the wazoo and made up every excuse and everything saying that I was this and I was that. and. I got to do counseling again, even though I was already seeing a therapist. And after a while, when you're in foster care and you get one parent that's actively tried to kill you on multiple occasions and then another parent that just has a new family and doesn't really mind to put up for you too much. I mean, he'll send a card on Christmas, but you know how it is. And you're in a new family in foster care and you know that they want you to be there for as long as you need to be there, but not forever because they're just helping you out. It's far and few between that you're gonna get picked up out of foster care, especially if you're you're at 16 and you just came out of an abusive household. And so one night after a particular bad court case where 
the judge decided that uh, my mom was in the right and I needed to go home and they were going to send a squad car to my foster home to pick me up and take me back to my mother's I cut my wrists in the bathtub and I cut from my elbows to my wrists down the vein and I got found by my foster parents and they realized and the court realized I did not want to go back I would rather die and go back and be tortured by this woman who viewed my mental illness, my obsessive compulsive disorder, my dyslexia, not my dyslexia, my hyperlexia, and what was most likely at that time bipolar disorder, type 2, but undiagnosed, she viewed that all as possession by the devil. My name is Ben and I am a type 2 bipolar and I am a purely cognitive or primarily cognitive obsessive, obsessive compulsive disorder uh, sufferer. Uh, I was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar disorder about three years ago and I have been purely obsessional or pure O obsessive compulsive for the last 23 years. Uh, I got diagnosed uh, at a very early age um, I actually had issues in school with reading in the opposite of dyslexia. I was hyperlexic and I had issues with reading whatever I could including um, teachers uh, papers when I shouldn't, passwords for computers and it got me into a little bit of trouble and the numbers that I would read and the words I would read would repeat my head and I ended up going to see a therapist around the age of six or seven and I got diagnosed as purely obsessional, obsessive compulsive, among which anxiety is my overwhelming issue. Being diagnosed at an exceptionally early age was uh, difficult in the sense that I was detached from my peers and my classmates immediately. With my form of pure O, I have uh, existential anxiety. I don't have anxiety about harming others or uh, things happening on a daily basis. I have existential anxiety about asteroids and in the future we're currently we're getting ready to build the Mars and the, the moon landing missions and whatnot and I just have anxiety about people that will colonize that. I have kids and they'll land on the moon and my daughter, Olivia, wants to dance on the moon particularly. She wants to be one of the first astronauts to dance on the moon. And I just get this overwhelming dread. And even as a child, I would think about, you're young. You think, I want to go to space. I want to go on adventures. And then you get these intrusive thoughts of, there's no oxygen in space. There's no retreat from space. There's nothing in space but a vacuum of nothingness. And these watching Jurassic Park, Star Wars, anything that are detrimental to being young, the overwhelming scenarios of this doomsday plot wouldn't so much affect me, but the little things that would happen along the way to the people in it were what I would notice and their connections to each other and the existential almost aura that we all kind of carry with us of what we want to be, who we want to be, how we perceive the world, how we love the world, how we hate the world, 
It was like suddenly I could understand and see our connections to it and no one else could. And this greatly isolated me from my friends, from the people I cared about. And it took probably six or seven more years into middle school or high school before I realized that I could articulate with the world in my own way as long as I took my time and didn't overwhelm the people with all of the thoughts that were rushing through my head on a constant basis. Because the anxiety never goes away. It, you, you translate it into either something productive or it destroys you. And you can think about it as a driving force or the destructive force. And so I learned to take that anxiety of and that compulsion to think and read and that analytical mind, and I devised ways to be creative. I built robots, learned to make things. I, I tried to enjoy the threads that I started to see between people. This friend had an interest in this. This friend had an interest in this. They may not know each other. Well, they should meet. They're going to benefit from that. And it became over almost, excuse me, excuse me, half a decade or more, it became this understanding that I, I compulsively needed to understand the world and I needed to deal with the world and I wasn't always going to be able to do that on my own. So I needed to seek out the proper ways of identifying when it was too much, when I was being overwhelmed, when I was caught up in a cycle of my own repetitive thoughts that were intruding. And with pure O, you, you, have, you don't have the overt compulsions of touching doorknobs or washing your hands repetitively. It's covert compulsions. So it's more for myself. On really bad days, I count all the light poles while I'm driving, and I have to multiply them. Or if I see a number on a sign that I've read, because I compulsively read with my hyperlexia as well, I begin to multiply that number by nine or seven or another random number I've seen. And I can't help but do that because of the cognitive portion of that puro. And it really wears me down to the point where you feel like you've run a marathon against your will. And it's your own brain telling you to do it. And you have to identify when it comes on and why it if you can, why it's come on. And then how, if I can't necessarily put a stop to this anxiety attack, to this compulsive thought, how can I work through it? And arguably the biggest thing for me was learning about the age of 16 was as simple as it was, as the therapist finally told me, is you are not your compulsive thoughts. You are not the things that are pushing their way into your mind. They are just that. They're intrusive compulsive thoughts and you can acknowledge them and then move on with them. And that was eye-opening to me. It was the understanding that I can take this thought that I need to, and I still do have the thoughts that I need to lock my door multiple times or check it, but it's more of, is, is, is our bank account okay? It's that existential dread that comes in there. And so I tried to use it to weaponize my life in the sense of productivity. I, I want to, if I'm having anxiety about our bank account being withdrawn or us having our identities stolen, which is, I, I go through extreme lengths already to protect my ID, 
but with my wife and I, and I work to communicate with her very openly. And I say, I'm, I'm having a nightmare that somebody has taken our credit card number or debit card number and bought a house in the keys or something crazy like that. And it usually starts with that simple intrusive thought. And if I can't address it, it runs away and it takes me with it and it holds me hostage the entire time. And when I cut my wrists and I tried to take my life, I found out how wrong I was. Because I had friends and I had people that thought of me as family coming out of the woodwork. I had my best friend from high school, his parents intervened and said that they would rather face criminal charges than let me go back there. And they straight up spirited me out of the hospital for all legal purposes without my foster parents' knowledge. They spirited me out of there and took me to another city. And I was out of that city. Or I was out of my, my hometown, away from my mom, illegally for four days while we had to fight a court injunction. Excuse me, three days, one of which I was in the hospital. And thankfully, they were able to release me back to my foster parents without my mom being there. But it was terrifying. It was the darkest moment in my life and it is not something I think of proudly but it is something that I do think of and I try to share it with others because it reminds me again I know I keep saying it but that communication helps I was ashamed at of the abuse I was suffering at the hands of my mother After the suicide attempt, I had um, a bit of a struggle. It wasn't an overnight click in my head that I mattered to people and that I should stick around. Um, I had a, a kid that was two years younger than me, and uh, his name's Kenny. He's a good kid. Um, Kenny, if you're listening, I still think about your brother. Hope you're doing well. You used to skateboard with you. But he found out that I tried to commit suicide. And uh, he came over to my house. And he just cried. And um, he didn't understand. He didn't know. He, he had known me for years, and he had no idea that the abuse I was suffering. And... Um, it kind of dawned on me that there's probably a lot of other kids who don't have a platform or a voice, who don't have somebody to stick up for them or reach out and help them out. Whether they're in a situation now, uh, still with their original parents, or they're even if they're in foster care and they don't have somebody looking out for them. Um, I realized that 
Kenny looked up to me and he was as weird as it sounds like my ward in the neighborhood. He was like my buddy. He was two years younger than me. And I looked out for him. And he had the realization that I could go away at any moment. And he didn't know what to do with that. So he ran to my house and cried. And we, he broke down because he didn't know what to do. And this light bulb kind of clicked on in my head. And this is, like I said, it wasn't immediately. This is a couple of months afterwards. This is after the court stuff. It kind of died down. And I hadn't shared very openly that I had tried to take my life. It kind of got out on its own a little bit. But I realized that if I talk about this and I tell anybody who will listen, whether that's a stranger on the bus or my doctor or my wife or all you listeners, the information that I suffered and was too ashamed to talk about it and I suffered from intrusive thoughts of you know, maybe, maybe I am evil because it's being hammered into your head as a kid by a parent. And then I realized as I got out of it, if I tell people that that's not okay, that it happened to me, maybe somebody else will listen and say, maybe I shouldn't smack my kid around. Maybe if my kid says that he has anxiety about jumping off the diving board, I won't ridicule him and tell him to just jump in the pool and stop being a wimp. Maybe I'll walk him through it and say, what's bothering you about it? Maybe I can take my trial and help to teach others to just ask, to just open that door. The, the worst thing that anybody's ever going to say to you is no. I had to ask Kenny, are you okay? Because he came to me worried about me, and I didn't realize for him how much I affected him. And when I said, are you okay? I learned that his home life wasn't great. It wasn't the worst, but he was having anxiety about his parents having issues. And he didn't know what he was going to do without the safety of coming to me and just riding our bikes around the neighborhood. But at the same time, he didn't know it was okay to come to me and say, man, my parents are fighting, and it's, it's really got me down, and I don't know what to do. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a perfect light switch. It wasn't like I turned into the, the world's greatest person overnight. But I realized that I needed to shut up a lot more and listen. And then when I needed to, I needed to ask just the simple question of, are you okay? Because so many times I carry the anxiety of other people with me. If, if somebody I know has an issue in their life, I can't help but not compulsively think about it. And the best thing that I can do with that compulsive thought intruding my mind at every moment of every single day is that I can try to translate it into good. So if I have a friend who dislikes their job and they want 
they're talking about how much it makes them uncomfortable and they want out of it. Well, it, that bothers me. I, I think about that constantly and I think, you know, oh, my little brother's really, really disliking work at the factory. He, he's, he's gotten injured twice. He doesn't want to be there. It's a hot environment. You know, he was really enjoying being at the bike at the bike factory, and now he's over at a glass factory, and it's just a different environment. Well, that can keep me up at night if I don't if I don't put a stop to it. And so, how I can put a stop to it is I can take it and be productive, and I can say, okay, give me your resume. I want to touch up your resume for you. I can't go get you a job, but I can review your resume. I can touch it up. I'm sitting at home. I'm disabled. I can help. I can I can ask the questions because of the things that have happened to me that people don't want to ask. If everything in my life, the anxiety, the depression, any of the abuse I suffered as a kid, if any of it ever means anything, hopefully it means that for a moment I'm able to make somebody feel better about their mental health about the, even if it's a temporary depression you know I, I, I bombed this grade in school i bombed this test my parents are going to be upset are they really are they going to be so upset that they'll never speak to you again are they are they willing to, are they willing to disown the life they brought into the world because you got a b instead of an a and that was a conversation i had with my friend senior year of high school he got a b instead of an a and he was worried that his parents were going to physically disown him, like drop legal paperwork. And I had to be like, you're going to college. You're going to a better college than 99% of our classmates. That's, you have extracurriculars. I was on the robotics team with you. I was in advanced classes with you. Of everybody in our school that didn't screw around for the last four years, it's you. This B will not make your parents disown you, if anything, Knowing your parents, they'll be like, yeah, of course you're going to get a B. But we get caught up in our own heads and the perceptions we have of other people and what they're going to think of these actions. And, oh, my goodness, it's it's going to be too much. And sometimes all, all it takes is that initial phrase is, are you okay? Or sometimes, I'm not okay. having pure O and the bipolar, I would, if I had a time machine and I went back in time and I avoided all paradoxes and somehow interacted with myself, I would have to suggest that I need to enjoy it. I need, the, the anxiety, when you, when you have pure O, the anxiety is always there. It's, it's like your it's like your skin you just wear it but you what you do with it is up to you and I for me I chose to take tattoos and put them all over my skin I, I choose to put art on my skin and with my anxiety I want to do the same thing and I should be able to understand that as a kid I wish I did I wish I could go back in time and say when you're in that moment and your anxiety is telling you that you need to flee and run and this is not a good thing, 
that's just the adventure of youth. That's You're supposed to ding-dong ditch with your friends. You're supposed to kiss a girl under a streetlight, you know? You're supposed to have failures that you learn from later in life. And if you obsess and have anxiety over every single situation and step that you take along the way, you're not present for any of them. You don't appreciate them. You don't understand them because you're so far withdrawn into your own mind of the scenario and the persona of the people that are there. Instead of interacting with them, you just ignore it all and focus on your anxiety. And instead, just enjoy it. Just just acknowledge the anxiety exists. Acknowledge it's there. It's like when you're going to swing off that giant rope swing and you feel that knot in the pit of your stomach and you're you're like, I don't like heights, but I want to swim in that beautiful, cool lake down there. And all I got to do is swing down, but I don't like heights. I don't got to do it. I don't want to do it. And you feel that knot in your stomach. That knot's going to be gone in a second. That knot's going to be gone the minute you let go of that rope and you splash into that cool water. Because it, it's just a moment. It's just a moment. And if you walk away from that moment that anxiety is just going to keep repeating on itself. It's just going to keep building the anxiety of, oh, do I, do I look bad to people? Do I look bad because now I didn't jump into the lake? Should I feel bad because I didn't have the audacity to do it? Should I, do, I need, do I need to go home and toughen up? Do I need to work on jumping off of things? What, what needs to happen? Instead, just acknowledge that that anxiety is there. It is in your stomach. It is there to tell you that this is happening, but it doesn't have to prevent you from it happening. You have to enjoy those moments. If, if, if little me ever, ever somehow gets a hold of uh, this tape falling through a time loop back to young me somewhere in the 90s, this is all you got to do, man. Just relax. Just, it sounds counterintuitive, but just relax. It, it, it's what has to happen. We have to talk to each other. We have to communicate. And you can't be afraid of having that pride. You can't be afraid of what people might think of you. Because I can guarantee you a thousand times over, every person in life has thought at one time or another, do I have a problem? You can be as patient as you want with somebody who is sick or ill or upset or anxious but sometimes you really do need to give them some space and that doesn't mean running away from them but that means giving them as little as five minutes to literally calm down from an anxiety attack before you give them a hug or taking the time to listen For more information and to donate, please visit youdon'tfightalone.org. You Don't Fight Alone is sponsored in part by Mentally Chill, an improv team talking about mental illness and how it's so hard but no one likes to bother anyone about it. Be prepared to be bothered. Find them on facebook.com slash mentallychillimprov, 
Instagram at Mentally Chill Improv, and at Voodoo Comedy beginning this September. The You Don't Fight Alone podcast is a production of You Don't Fight Alone Incorporated, produced and engineered by James Fisher and Keaton Lycom. The information presented by You Don't Fight Alone is not intended as medical advice. If you have mental health questions, please talk to a mental health professional.